Welcome to another episode of the Recommendations podcast, where I talk all things business, love, and science. Today, I am joined by an incredible guest, Dan Dapani, who has been a monk for 10 years previously and now an entrepreneur and also Hindu priest and has an incredible story to tell and incredible practical practical advice to share with us today. So I'm so honored to be joined and to be talking to you this morning, Dan Dapani. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be a phenomenal conversation. I can feel it in my bones because when we met for just a brief moment over a Zoom call, I knew we had an instant connection because we began to talk about human behavior almost immediately. And I know that within your story and everything that you've experienced in the last decade, two decades, there's so much goodness that can come from this chat. So just to share a little bit of context and you know, give, give any listener a bit of an understanding of your background, let's, let's start there. Share with me what you've been doing. I'll give you a little context, uh, your listeners, a little context. I, I was born in Malaysia. I moved to Australia, to Perth, uh, where I went to high school and university, uh, studied electrical engineering, graduated, moved to Hawaii, and lived in a cloistered traditional Hindu monastery for 10 years as a, as a celibate Hindu monk. And, and that's where I had my training with my guru, and my, when my vows expired, instead of moving back to Australia, I moved from Hawaii to the mainland US and no longer a monk. Uh, I'm a Hindu priest. And the difference between a priest and a monk in the Hindu tradition is that monks lead celibate lives and they usually live in cloisters with each other or by themselves. Whereas a Hindu priest is a householder. So he can get married, be an entrepreneur, work at McDonald's, earn a living, have family, kids, the whole nine yards. So that's where I am. I, I don't work at McDonald's. I'm an entrepreneur. I have my business and uh, married with a four-year-old daughter and used to live in New York for 11 years and moved to Costa Rica two years ago where we're creating a spiritual sanctuary and a botanical garden. Wow. Yeah. It's, a, it's a journey to get there. And immediately the first question I want to ask is, what was the moment you decided to become a monk in the first place? Why did you go down that road? Well, that was when I was around four or five years old. I was in Malaysia. Um, a Hindu monk came to our house. Uh, he was from Sri Lanka. He, he dropped in. And my mom invited him in. He, he was Hindu monks and Hindu priests are dressed very similarly, um, just for context. So he was dressed very much like me with robes and beads and ash on the forehead. And when I saw him, I was about four or five years old. I said, that's me. You know, that's, he was my firefighter, basically, you know, like a kid, a boy would see a firefighter and go like, I want to be a firefighter or, I don't know, Superman or Batman or whatever. And he was my Batman. And I looked at him and I said, that's what I want to be. But it wasn't until I was about eight or nine, I realized it wasn't about being a monk. It, it was about enlightenment. And that was what I was seeking. The monastic path was the most efficient way to enlightenment. And that clarity came when I was around eight or nine years old. Were you talking about 
these feelings and these desires to your family at such a young age? Was was it a discussion that was open? No. So where were you learning? (laughs) (laughs) Where was the learning coming from? Previous lives. Nothing happened between zero and four or five years old or eight years old. I didn't have any deeply profound experiences or travels or encounters in my life that would cause me to think this way. I believe in reincarnation. So this was uh, obviously to me work I had done in a previous life. And it was just a continuity of consciousness and speaking off, picking out where I left off before I kicked the bucket in the last life. It's a really interesting topic for me. I very much relate and connect to that because I recall from my own personal experience, I have these memories of such a young age where the way my brain was thinking, like the actual thought process is identical to how it is now. This deep, complex, hyper-analytical, chatty mind that I have now, I, I have these beautiful early memories of being also four or five years old, looking, sitting, observing, being in a room full of adults thinking, how do I know what I know? I remember that distinct thought at four years old. I know too much. I know things. Where is Where am I getting this information from? And I only sort of later in life understood that it is a past life connection. It's having that deep knowing within you of I've been here before I've experienced this. Yeah. And usually between children between the ages of zero and four years old tend to remember their past lives. They just don't have an environment that cultivates that or welcome that or encourages that. And and the simple analogy I would always give is to say, Rebecca, you imagine you you go to uh, South Africa for, for a month and you go on this amazing safari journey. When you come back after that journey, back to Sydney, what would you be talking about in the days after you return? Obviously, your amazing safari journey. So imagine if you went on a 85-year safari journey, (laughs) right? And you died (laughs) and you came back, what would you be talking about? Yeah, I can think of a few things. (laughs) Yeah, the 85-year journey and... And most kids try to express, well, not most kids, I should say kids, some kids try to express that. And parents go like, oh, you know, it's very nice that Johnny, Johnny talks about how he flew the plane and how he got shot down when he was, you know. But, and they go like, you know, he's got a great imagination. But no, he was telling you he was a fighter pilot in World War II and he got shot down and you just dismiss it. And if you dismiss it enough times, then the kid starts to go like, oh, okay, whatever. I think this is a beautiful moment to recognize how much we do that as adults to so many other things as well. You know, you you think about imagination and curiosity and that ability to, to see things from a lateral perspective as an adult, how often we get shut down for expressing ourselves in such a manner. And I do think there's that big link to what an entrepreneur is or what a business owner is that makes them successful is that, you know, holding on to that curiosity and that ability to push through those boundaries of people saying like, no, <laughs> calm down, you know, it's, that's too much or, you know, that's, you're thinking too big. I, I think it, 
you know, relates to a lot of what you're saying as well. It's, it's, I'm just linking the two. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, it's quite typical for most people to believe that they can't do something or things can't be done. And, and people often, that's the first thing that they voice, you know, it can't be done. You can't do this, so it's not possible. But to me, it's a reflection of their their own limitations rather than somebody else's, which is what we often project. Mm -hmm. I would agree. It's a it's a beautiful beginning, and I can see how it shaped so much of your journey. And yeah. we look at where you are now and, and everything that you're working on and achieving and the people you're working with and the caliber of success they're having around you. Where where are you now in terms of everything that you've been through? What are the the key learnings that you would have taken from that experience of being a monk for 10 years to how you live your life now? I, I would say the biggest learning is what I put into this book that I recently published, which is really, the book is called The Power of Unwavering Focus. And the crux of the book is really understanding, having a fundamental understanding of how the mind works uh, which is understanding the difference between the mind and awareness. The mind doesn't move, but awareness moves within the mind. And the goal is then to learn how to concentrate, practice concentration, so that we can focus our awareness on the things and people that matter to us. And that's the essence of what the book is. I would say of everything I've ever learned from my guru, if I had one thing to share with anyone, and if I was dying right this moment, that would be it. Because once you understand how the mind works, you can harness it. And if you can harness it, you can direct it. And I always give the example of a stick shift car. Uh, a lot of people nowadays can't drive a manual car. And, but if you knew how it worked, you know, how to step on the clutch and how to slowly release the clutch, clutch and uh, change gears and step on the accelerator or you're parked on a slope and, you know, being able to, like, get off the slope without rolling back, once you can do that, you can navigate the car and you can take the car wherever you want it to go. The mind is no different. We never get taught how the mind works. We don't understand the fundamental inner workings of the mind. And therefore, we struggle to harness the mind and direct the mind. And we suffer as a repercussion of having the most powerful tool in the world. So for me, one of the things I'm really focused on doing is giving people this basic understanding in a very simplified way. And you don't need a complex understanding. And people love to make things super complex and use terms that you don't understand, you know, like your prefrontal cortex, and then you have the dopamine effect and the serotonin. And like, stop, please. You know, I'm not a biologist or a scientist. You know, speak to me in simple language that I can understand. So once people can understand that, then they can start to begin to do more with their life. But you need to understand what you're working with. And if you don't understand what you're working with, you'll always struggle in life. And, and that's, to me, the one-on-one, the basic place that we all need, every human needs to start. you got to understand your body, how your body works. You have to understand your mind, how your mind works, because you can't separate yourself from your mind and your body. They're with you 24 hours a day. So get to know it and leverage that understanding to, to live a more rewarding life. There's so much in that that I really connect with because I, I very much am a huge advocate for the belief that when we as people 
make decisions, when it comes from a place of an empowered state of knowing, like conscious, empowered state of of being and self-connection, the decisions we make have intention, have meaning, have cause and have a positive effect generally. But when we're lacking that piece of education, which is what you're talking about, it's that knowing, it's it's so chaotic. Things are impulsive, are reactive, are lacking that deep connection to the self of what do you actually need, you know, to function on a basic level. And I think it's very much reflects on on what you're talking about. And, you know, as an example, I the new company that I've started is in health. And we we do a lot of functional testing with our practitioners and our amazing sort of patients where we look at their their biochemistry and everything on a cellular level and we look at their health in a bigger picture and connect the dots. But the thing that's always missing is mindset. Because if you're not ready to change, if you're not aware of, you know, that mind-body connection and you're stuck in that limiting belief of, you know, I am sick or I will always be sick or, you know, I am the victim of my illness, no matter how much help you get given, you'll never actually get better. And I think it's the same thing with personal development and, you know, present living and that awareness that you're talking about because until someone actually wants to connect with themselves, because as you know, that can be quite painful to Mm -hmm. actually connect with yourself. I don't think there's room for them to do so. So how do you overcome that, that, that moment when you're talking to people, when you're working with people to actually connect to their mind and body, if they've never done that before, if they don't know how, or if they don't want to. If they don't want to, there's absolutely nothing you can do. You can't force <laughs> yeah. a mango to ripen. And and I completely believe this. If you don't want to, then you don't want to. You'll never do the work. They might listen to you and they go like, oh, that's interesting, but they're never going to do anything about it. And for the people that want to do something about it, I think one of the biggest things where, where you would start or I would start is actually making the case to them as to well, I I have to sell this concept to them and they have to buy in. I have to sell to them the concept that their understanding of the mind, even at a very basic fundamental level, will help them to live a better life. And once they buy in, they'll do the work. If not, they'll just be entertained. They go, that's really interesting. I like what he's saying. That makes so much sense. And then go home and do absolutely nothing about it. But once you buy in, then you'll do something. So the first step is actually selling them this concept. Does and that they frustrate have to buy. you? Does that, Sorry? Does, that, does that frustrate you? Like, did you ever go through a phase where, you know, I can see that a big part of your mission is you're trying to better the world. You have a yeah. connection to humans. You want to help them. You want, you know, to, to be that catalyst of change. Did you ever go through a personal experience where, you know, you felt frustrated or deeply challenged that you couldn't change certain people's minds to be open to what you were talking about? No, because I've never tried and I, and I over the decades have realized that people only change if they want to change and that everybody is 
at a different point in their evolution and maturity. And you really have to accept them for where they are in their journey. And I can do my work and what I share, and I can always improve and do a better job at it. And there's always room for improvement, but some people are going to make pro more progress than others. And I, and I'm okay with that. And, and it doesn't frustrate me. It doesn't bother me. And it's just where they are in, in their growth and their, their journey. And I just have to accept it. I plant trees. We planted four to 5,000 trees in the last 10 years. Some trees take forever to grow. And then I have one tree here that's almost 50 feet tall that I've only planted nine years ago. Wow. It's grown 50 wow. feet in nine years, and others have grown a foot in seven years. <laughs> and there's one that I planted six years ago, and I think that's only grown two, in two inches. Wow. That's a beautiful reflection of, you know, yeah. people. It is. And I can get frustrated, or I can just go, well, that's how it is. I mean, I'm, I bring this up because I feel yeah. so many people would almost be thinking the same way as myself or that thought would pop in their head, you know, as, as coaches, as business coaches, as entrepreneurs, as people who are, in, you know, in, in leadership roles, people that are there to build teams and inspire teams. It's a similar context where you're, you know, hopefully instilling your values and your passion and your mission into those around you. That's what grows and cultivates teams when it's that togetherness. But you can see that there'd be so many people at that position deeply frustrated that, you know, that one employee or that one friend or that one person in their circle isn't willing to change or develop. And they're so wholeheartedly invested in that, that it frustrates well, them. Yeah, because they have false expectations or erroneous ex expectations. I had an entrepreneur who had a cleaning business, and I remember him telling me once uh, who, you know, look, I've got the staff. I showed them how to use the tool. I showed them how to clean, and they still make mistakes. I showed them like three times. I'm so frustrated. I just don't know what to do. And I'm going like, you're asking a cat to bark. <laughs> uh, so it's all your fault. This guy doesn't know how to do it. Stop asking him to do it. It's find somebody else who, yeah and, and just you know you cat i hope the simple way to look at it is a cat meows a dog barks just remember that if you want a cat to bark you're always going to be frustrated so if you keep asking someone to do something and they don't know how to do it and it frustrates you over and over again because they can't adapt adapt what you're teaching them or sharing with them then you're just asking a cat to bark how and do maybe you the cat Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, you just need to wait till the cat evolves into a dog. <laughs> it could be a few more lifetimes. But if not, you'll just be perpetually frustrated. And, and we are an impatient lot. You know, we're impatient society, humans. Like technology has caused us to be impatient. We, we get so rewarded by technology uh, that we take that same instantaneous reward mindset and apply it to humans. When one is nature and one is technology, they're two completely different things. Everything in nature takes time. Technology doesn't take time. So we get frustrated with each other because 
we expect results right away or yesterday. It's very true. I I take that and I reflect on even how we how we communicate with family. You know, there's there's this concept of personal development and mindset and awareness and you know, I briefly touched on business. But even more importantly is personal relationships and the family and the parents and the children and you know those in that inner circle the the partners we hold those same expectations on them a lot of the time you know especially when you get comfortable when you know time evolves especially from let's say parent to child relationship i can imagine so many people keeping and harnessing that same expectation and frustration in those relationships how do you begin to create awareness in those environments to ensure that you're cultivating space and safety rather than you know leaning on that frustration um i i think also one of the causes of it is that if you can't accept you for who you are, then you can't accept others for who they are. And I would say that's the place to start. If you're frustrated with people, um, whether it's colleagues, clients, employees, family, relatives, then really look at yourself and go like, you know, if you can't accept where they are in their journey and where they are in their evolution, then there's obviously things about you that you can't accept as well. But if you can accept you for everything that you are, and accepting doesn't mean condoning, uh, you just acknowledge all the good things and not so good things about you, and you can own it and know that you are a building under construction, you're still in a working progress, then you can look at others and go, that's where they are. And some buildings take longer to build because it's a bigger project and others are quicker to build. Then you don't go around getting frustrated with people with the book that you've written and everything mm -hmm. that you're talking about now if we looked at some of the practical pieces of advice and and the experiences that you've personally had what where do you start where are the the foundational tools that someone could today listening to this episode go okay i want to embark on this journey i would say first step is buy the book <laughs> the second step is read the book. <laughs> and if that's too hard, <laughs> listen to the then book. <laughs> listen to the book, but listen to the book while you're not doing anything else. The book is called The Power of Unwavering Focus, and I probably cannot begin to tell you how many people listen to the book while doing something else. So you're listening to a book on focus while doing something else. That's <laughs> going to help, right? It's like, okay, let me read, listen to a book on how to eat healthy food while binging on pizza and drinking beer <laughs> and eating fried food. Hmm. Okay. Let me learn how to focus while I multitask. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. refrain from doing multiple things if you're listening to a book. Just listen to the book. And chapters three, four, and five are the most important things, important ones, which is really about how the mind works. That's the most critical thing. But chapter two uh, and one has the, con the subject on making the case. You really have to buy in. 
as to why this is important. And for me, one of the biggest impetus for, for leading a focused life or to understanding how your mind works is that you have one life and that you're going to die one day. You are going to die. Do you know that? And you're not going to die when you're old. You could die tomorrow. You could die today. You could die a year from now. And once you accept that and understand that that's how life works and there's no guarantee just because you're 21 or 29 or 39 or 45 that you'll live up to 90, even though you're in great health, you get run, get run over by a bus tomorrow, then you start realizing the preciousness of life, that the time that you have on this planet is the greatest gift you have. The fact that you're alive, that you can breathe, and if you're blessed enough to be functioning mentally, physically, what a gift. Now the question is, how are you going to use that life? What are you going to make out of it? And if you want to do something great with it, then understand what you're working with. Understand your body, understand your mind, leverage that understanding to create a great life. And this book is about understanding the mind, and it's about focusing the mind so you can create the most amazing life that you can expect. And when you get to the end of your life, you go look back and go, that was an amazing life. I think what's beautiful about what you're instilling in this book and, and in your messaging is that you don't have to go through the hard stuff to have this understanding and awareness. And it's, again, something you and I really connected on, which was that thought that so much of the time somebody has to experience something traumatic or terrible or go through something terrible to have that contrast, to have yeah. appreciation, to have gratitude and forced awareness. And the truth is you don't. We don't you have don't. to suffer. No. And here's another perspective to take. You can learn through other people's suffering. Isn't that amazing? Watch other people suffer, take their lesson, apply it to your life and move on. You don't have to suffer yourself. Life is not about suffering. My guru had a beautiful saying and, and it goes, life is meant to be lived joyously. And I love that. Life is meant to be lived joyously. Life is not about suffering. So don't feel like you have to learn from pain, from suffering. You don't have to. And you don't need a scientific understanding of the mind. You don't need a, you don't need to be a medical scientist to or psychologist to learn about the mind. What I share in the book is really basic, it's really simple, but it gives you enough understanding to navigate the mind. The same way, going back to the stick shift car, if you know how to operate the gears, the clutch, the brake, the accelerator, you can drive the car. You don't, you may not drive it like Mario Andretti or a race car driver, whoever that may be, but you can get to Costco. And that's enough. And a basic understanding of the mind allows you to move forward in your life in, in a very positive and rewarding way. There's something that I, I feel you may have some interesting insight on. And, you know, before I started the company I'm in now, I was a personal trainer. I was in the fitness industry mm -hmm. and a lot of my clients were actually younger women, girls and, you know, the sort of early teenage years, 16, 17. 
And a big part of being a personal trainer is being a mindset coach. You're there for them to talk. They're in a safe environment. They want to share with you. They're, there's a deep connection to mindset and the physicality and that progress that we make together. And the big takeaway that I uncovered was there was this huge group of young people without purpose. They were growing up in a very privileged environment, incredibly affluent parents, beautiful, safe, wonderful upbringing, and yet they were depressed. Yet they were unhappy and complacent in every element of their life. And the big fundamental familiar thing that kept popping up again and again was, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've got nothing to do. I've got no reason. I don't need to go get a job at 16. My parents are fine. I don't have the desire or passion to be creative or build a brand or build something or, you know, do something that will leave this place better because they're so deeply within themselves unhappy and disconnected. And then these people, these young teenagers grow up into adult adulthood and carry that unfortunate feeling with them. And then you look at all the past generations, like my grandparents, who did go through so much adversity and so much challenge, and they knew their purpose. They had a reason to get up every morning, because if they didn't, there'd be no clean water, there'd be no electricity, there'd be no food on the table. And I think a big part of what you're teaching and what you're learning actually opens up that door for them where they do reconnect to themselves, these this younger generation, but then they discover they still don't know who that person is. How do we navigate this new age of, of humans who have everything? Yeah, I mean, it's, for me, I, I think it's giving them perspective. You know, unless they have perspective, there's nothing to compare it to. And, you know, I work with a lot of wealthy clients who, whose kids have an amazing life, like you said, a perfect life. And I had one uh, client recently asked me about his son, and I said, he needs to have an immersion in some other country where he's living someplace for six months where he doesn't have clean running water, he doesn't have internet, you know, he, he is sleeping on the floor. It's not that you go and you visit and you, you hand out some food packages to some people and then you come home and you said like, hey, you know, we went and did this on a summer holiday. What the hell was that? You, you have to go live that life till you realize how privileged you are that you can turn on the tap and have clean water. But if not, you will never have perspective. You can talk to them about it. How would they know any different? I feel privileged for what I have because I, I didn't grow up wealthy, but grew up middle class, maybe a little lower middle class. But I also lived as a monk for 10 years. I lived in a hut that was three meters by three meters in size. So no electricity, no water, no plumbing, nothing. I had a futon mattress that I slept on every day. Uh, had a little glass with an oil, which was an oil lamp, had a wick and oil in it, and that was it. I had nothing else. So everything I have now is like, wow, I've got this. How do we take that though and 
provide that contrast to whether it is young young children, teenagers, young adults. How do we provide that con context and contrast when not everybody is going to go do that? It sounds no. good, yeah. but the reality is that's they quite unlikely. Yeah. No, I, I would say you, you'd have to make the case to the parents, right? Because the kids are not in a place where mentally they're even thinking about this. Parents have to start teaching them. Parents, you have to make the case to say, hey, you know, do you want your kids to grow up, you know, with everything that they have, but be unhappy, be depressed, and have no purpose and meaning in life? And if you can make the case to the parents and they buy in and say, you know what, you're right. I, I want my kid to grow up with a sense of purpose, with a mission to know where to invest their time, their energy. They wake up every morning because driven to do something as opposed to going like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do today. Then the parents can start instilling it in them. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can only talk to the people that want to listen. And the majority of the people don't want to listen. And they, unfortunately, need to have a painful existence to come full circle back to a point where they're looking for a way out of their painful existence. There's really nothing you can do to change that. I, I, I work with an enormous number of wealthy people, and the majority of them don't do anything about it. They all come to me and ask me about their kids. You know, how do I teach my kids to have a sense of purpose, to think about the future? And I tell them, here's what you need to do. And they go like, great. And then they don't do anything about it. They go back to golfing or going out to parties or running their business or whatever else they want to do. They obviously don't care enough. I can imagine that you've experienced the the other side, though, which is what f would fuel you to keep on this journey. Can you share a beautiful experience that you've encountered with someone that really listened? I do with my daughter. I listened. Mm. And I take the time to share with her, to talk to her. You know, she's four and a half years old. I teach her about how her mind works. And she's gaining a better and better understanding of how her mind works so she can learn to control it and direct it and navigate it at four years old. Then the goal is to teach her about her energy so that she can learn to manage her energy, which in turn teaches her how to manage her emotions and channel her emotions. And then, while doing all this, teaching her a sense of purpose, of having a purpose in life. You know, when she gets to about five or six years old, I'll start talking to her about death and that life is finite, it's not short, it's fragile, and how precious life is and what a privilege it is to be alive. Because all the people that are dying right now will look at the people that are living and going, wow, what a privilege it is that you are alive. But the ones that are alive don't look at their lives as a privilege. I look at my life as a privilege. I'm so privileged that I'm alive. I do a gratitude exercise every night. And the first thing that I say is, I'm so grateful to be alive. Even before the fact that I have food or money or shelter, I'm just grateful that I'm alive. What a gift. So I try and install that in my daughter to let her know that the fact that she's alive is such a precious gift. And then now there needs to be a sense of purpose. 
And it's not only about me, but also how do I give back? How do I make uh, the world a better place? How do I make life a better place? Because when it's all about me, myself, and I, then you're never happy. No happiness comes out of that. I think it's important to to dedicate time and energy towards yourself in, in improvement and in personal improvement and growth and, and doing fun things too that bring joy to you, whether it's going out for a glass of wine or paragliding or whatever it is you wanna do that brings some joy. But there should be also a portion of your life that's dedicated to serving others, to making the world and people's humanity better. I think that's where that purpose can be found in this younger generation that I was talking about, I think the big solution that I discovered in my my own experience was community. And this beautiful sentiment was shared with me, which is we so underestimate how much people are willing to help and to be involved in something bigger than they are because it intrinsically links to that higher purpose of service. And I think when you lead from that place of love and you leave from that place of service, everything feels so much more abundant, so much more joyful. You're in a state of awe so much more regularly because it's just running through you that you're this aid of you know, goodness and love and healing to those around you. And I think community is such a big part of that, whether it's helping a friend move their house, whether it's, you know, going and volunteering, whether it's checking in on your friend who runs a small business and seeing if they need some help for the week. It's yeah. all of these little, you know, practical, realistic ways to get involved, but it builds such a bigger picture because, again, it's not about you. It's it's about, you know, being of service and leaving the environment around you in a better way. For sure. And, and you know, you, you talk about how do we get this message across, and I, I would say the best, most effective way is to live it and, and be a living example of that. Because then no matter where you go, people go like, I, I want to be more like that. It's so true. I, I recently was talking to a friend who was seeking some advice from me about their partner. And for the 20-minute phone call, she was complaining about all the things he isn't and that he is. Yeah. And I, I stopped her talking and I said, with all my love and respect, what about you? You know, mm -hmm. I think we need to lead by example. You can't point the finger and demand somebody else to change or develop or better when you're not in that state to begin with. You don't hold the right <laughs> to to communicate and demand change if you're not living it yourself, like you said. And I think that's that just reminded me of that moment because it it shocked her. Because <laughs> it Yeah. You no, know, absolutely. Like, wait, you're right. <laughs> yeah. How many 21 year old life coaches are, are out there? <laughs> you know? Many. Many. And these life coaches don't have a job. They are living, you know, they don't have an income that they can rent their own place or buy their own place and put food on their own table. I, I know someone who is a coach to entrepreneurs, but he's failed at every business he's ever started. He cannot get a business off the ground, cannot. And he's in his 40s. 
but wow. he coaches entrepreneurs. So, I mean, you know, there, there was this, this cute story of how this lady brought her son to see Gandhi and, and told Gandhi, can't, Gandhi, can you tell my son to stop eating sugar? He eats way too much sugar. And Gandhi looked at her and said, come back in one week. And so, so I'm like, okay. So she came back in one week with her son and he looked at her son and said, stop eating so much sugar. And she goes to him, why did you ask me to come back in one week in order to tell him this? And he goes, well, I had to stop eating so much sugar myself. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very cute story, you know? But it's so true. It's, it's so true. So true. It's, yeah. It's, I think the, the thought bubble that comes up is, you know, there's also this generation living through um, imposter syndrome. And I think this is where it comes from is because there's so much abundance of information out there. We're all experts. You can Google anything. And then we believe that it gives us the right to preach that information because the way we're wired as humans is when we learn new things, the first thing we want to do is go tell everyone, oh, look at me. I learned something new. I'm the expert. Guess what? Let me share this with you. How but many... 200 hour yoga teacher trainers out there well that's right who go attend a 200 hour yoga teacher training program and then go be a yoga teacher and in the monastery not... in that in the strict discipline life that we lead in the course of the monastery it took 36 years to be qualified as a teacher 36 years wow you know and and, and everybody does this not even in yoga you know people go do a course on ayurveda they go do uh, a fitness training course and all of a sudden they're a fitness training teacher focus on being a student as soon as you start thinking about teaching you become a terrible student and it's, look it's not to discredit the work right the intention isn't to say what you've done isn't enough or it's not good enough it's about can you remain teachable is i think where we're you know, leaning into right now in this conversation is it doesn't matter how many years you've done something or the expertise or wisdom that you've acquired. Yes, it's beautiful to want to give that outward and, and share and provide as much support as you can to your circle. But, rem but remaining teachable is what keeps you in that state of, I think, inner success. Like when we talk about success as a person, as like fulfillment and living in that state of joy and purpose is being teachable and not becoming the preacher. But not only just being teachable, right? Can you actually put into practice and sustain what you've learned? Yeah. I mean, any parrot can repeat what you say. I, I was somewhere in Singapore recently and ran across this parrot and it was just repeating what people were saying. And I'm like, it's like a lot of people. Can you actually live it? and sustain yeah. it year after year, month after month, year after year. And if you can, then you earn the right to, to share it. But if you can't, then, you know, why, why are you wasting time teaching it when you can't even put into practice what you're teaching? Because it's so much easier to sit there and tell people what to do than to actually live it yourself. Because that requires change in mindset, change in lifestyle, change 
in a lot of different things, which is too much work. So it's easy for me to just tell you how to do it and sound very knowledgeable. And I don't do it myself. It's a big part of that deflection and, and accountability. And I think that is very much consistently reoccurring. And, and so many people, you know, just generally, whether it's a personal or a business experience, I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's that let's point the finger, let's deflect, let's distract from my inability to connect with myself and my inability to remain consistent in these things. And let's talk about you. Let's point the finger at you. And again, it's, it's, it's very much what your book is about. And it's that everything that you teach now is about that shifting back inwards, that inner connection to the mind and body and that focus, because that's where all the goodness comes from. That's how we can even differentiate between what is bullshit, <laughs> excuse the French, yeah. and what isn't within us. There's, uh, you know, I think it's important for people to also shift their perspective. It's nice that you have the thought of wanting to help others and make an impact in other people's lives. But I want to share with you this saying by uh, this Hindu monk that lived in South India many years ago, and he's since passed. His name uh, was Ramana Maharishi, and he said, "Your greatest impact in the world is your own self-realization." Or, to put it in other words, your greatest impact in the world is your own unfoldment. Version 2.5 of you can impact the world in a better way than version 2.0 of you. So instead of focusing on impacting other people's lives and coaching other people and trying to change other people, focus on changing your life. Do the work. Make those changes. Sustain those changes. That would create a greater impact than going out there and preaching to everyone and telling everyone how they should live their lives. I think it also, on such a practical level, you know, we look at families and partnerships and, you know, your own circle, right? Because our lives are our environment. Us as individuals, we're yeah. literally the bulk of the people we surround ourselves with. And when we're stuck in that mindset of, oh, I need to be the, especially like men as a role, very much often sit in that space of, I have to be the, um, the one to fix everything. I have to be the supplier of, you know, whether it's income of, or emotional support. I have to be the glue. I have to do everything. I have to be there for everyone and neglect themselves. Well, that quality of giving is terrible. It's not present. It's not authentic. It's not fueled by love. It's fueled by fear that if I don't do this, they'll be mad at me. They'll leave me. They'll you know, won't want to be my friend anymore or won't want to work with me anymore. And again, it's this sentiment of if your health is optimal, if your self-care is balanced, if your, you know, intentions of putting yourself first and developing yourself first are at, you know, the the foundation of where your day begins, then that love that you give outwards, that care, that support, that you know, giving is so much more powerful, even if it's a quarter of what you thought, you know, you have to do. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yep. It's, it's a beautiful reminder for anyone listening to sort of take the, the moment today to check in with themselves and really ask, 
what am I doing today to look after myself and to be that person that I so desire to be? What are those steps that I'm actually taking today? And that's the key thing, right? Taking steps and taking action to to make improvement. And I always say, you know, a simple way to look at it is like ask yourself how every day can you push the ball forward just a little bit? You know, if it's just even a few inches pushing it forward every day. There's a, there's a saying my guru had, uh, a temple made out of bricks is built one brick at a time. If every day you just put one brick and one brick and one brick, in 10 years or in 20 years and 30 years, you'll have a gigantic temple. It seemed like our project we started 10 years ago with this empty abandoned pasture and we started planting trees. And now we have thousands of trees and we're going to plant at least a thousand more trees and plants this year. And in 50 years, it's going to be amazing. And in 300 years, it's going to be freaking spectacular. And that's the plan and the vision for the place. But it's just a little bit every day on yourself. I think that's just beautiful. A little bit. It's a it's a beautiful thought to close this conversation on to hope that anyone listening is able to have that little sparkle moment within themselves today and plant that seed. Always remember, you know, small is doable. Small creates no pressure, small creates no stress. It's achievable. Think small, small, tiny steps, a little bit every day, just one little thing. To create something humongous. And exactly. And, and that humongous thing can be within you, you know. Okay. Do one little thing every day. Thank you so much, Dandapani. I Ooh, I feel welcome. so, so grateful for this beautiful conversation because it's the best way I can start my day. And I hope anyone listening can take these nuggets of gold into practice and begin their journey and hopefully read your book. Yes, read the book. <laughs> read the book. <laughs> it's in there. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me on this.